Welcome to Oddly Influenced, a podcast about how people have applied ideas from outside software to software. Episode 6, James Shore and Boundary Objects. Episode 1 described the idea of boundary objects, an idea most associated with Susan Lee Starr. In this episode, I interview James Shore as he describes how he's used the idea in his own work. We drop a lot of names, of people, of books, of articles, all in this episode. You can find links in the show notes. I did somewhat better in my interviewing this time, but I still botched things, like the refresher on boundary objects. So let me give it now. Boundary objects are things that people use to coordinate cooperative work toward a goal. They typically arise in the process of doing the work and are used to keep doing it productively. Starr calls them the stuff of action. How do they help? Starr says that these collaborators belong to different, quote, social worlds. A lot of the reason boundary objects work is that they have a common meaning or interpretation that everyone across social worlds agrees on. But that meaning is nonspecific enough that people can elaborate on it in their own social world. Conflict is avoided when all the social worlds agree not to argue each other's elaborations. In a retrospective paper, Starr complains that people often talk as if these varying meanings are all there is to boundary objects. In my botched summary, I use the city of Portland, Oregon as an example. To a surprising lot of people in the U.S., Portland, Oregon means an urban hellscape that was literally burnt down by Black Lives Matter and Antifa. Jim lives in Portland, which was not burnt down, and he attaches rather different meaning to his hometown. That doesn't mean Portland is a boundary object. Jim is not collaborating with these people towards any goal. As you'll see, Jim doesn't make this mistake. He's characteristically humble about his understanding of boundary objects. I'm editing most of that out because I think he's wrong. His description of his idea made me think I understand boundary objects better rather than he's got it wrong. So we're speaking today to Jim Shore, who I've known for a while. I don't have any recollection of why I know him or where we met. However, back in the day when I was a consultant, I bought 20 or so copies of the book he wrote with a person whose name I forget called The Art of Agile Development. And when I went on consulting gigs, I would take those books and give them to people as I believe that this was the best book explaining XP-ish style agile development. He has since written a second edition, uh, which he was kind enough to send to me, and I was lazy enough not to have actually read yet. Um, because I'm not doing Agile consulting anymore. In any case, uh, I have a high regard for his opinions about all things Agile. And with that embarrassing introduction, uh, I will have him justify his existence. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Brian. Uh, no pressure. I, I got to say, although you, you didn't read the second edition of the book, uh, it is actually really good. Uh, it's a complete <laughs> rewrite. Um, Drowned up. You know, it's been 14 years, I think, since the first edition came out. Um, and I took, and the Agile community has learned a lot since then. I took all of that and I, 
um, put it all into the book. Um, it's really a how-to guide. You know, how do you do this? How do you do this stuff well? We all have all these people talking about how to do it poorly, but how do you do it well? Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so justifying my existence, uh, I, I don't think I can justify my existence, but uh, I go by James Shore online. My friends call me Jim. Uh, and Brian, I do count you as one of my friends. We've known each other. Yeah, like you, I can't remember where where we first uh, first met. I think it was just you know through the Agile conferences. Community was about a lot smaller back then uh, when when it got started, and then in some ways better. Um, so yeah, that's if there's a justification for my existence, it's that I've I've been around for a while. I've seen a lot. I do a lot of hands-on practical work with companies who want to do Agile well, um, and I do that as a programmer as part of programming teams and consulting for people who need that kind of experience and expertise. Okay. Uh, Jim tells me that he's used the idea of boundary objects, which were uh, introduced in episode one of this podcast. And so I invited him on to give us basically stories of how he's used the idea of boundary objects in his consulting practice. When I heard you talk about boundary objects, what I heard you say back in the dawn of time was that it is a shared representation that multiple people create together. And by doing so, a shared physicalized representation uh, that can be in a virtual environment like Miro, the online whiteboarding tool. Um, But at the time we were talking about uh, typically, you know, cards on a table, Mm -hmm. cards on a table, which Agile uh, absolutely loves and everybody's forgotten about. And so that that idea of index cards on a table, that was the boundary object. And by multiple people contributing to that boundary object, they were creating a shared understanding. So that's what I understood boundary objects to be and to mean. So I use, I use boundary objects, at least the way I understand boundary objects, in uh, a lot of different ways. But they all sort of come back to that sort of core idea of index cards on a table. Uh, or these days, because everybody's remote, I use Miro. Um, there's also Mural. There's other shared whiteboarding tools, but Miro is the one I use. And it is effectively, uh, it's got all kinds of stuff in it, but I effectively use it just for the fact that you can make index cards or sticky notes and put them on a big, giant shared table. Um, and I use them anytime that the team I'm working with, because of course in Agile, we are working with ideally cross-functional teams, I use them any time that the team is coming together to create a shared understanding of some sort. And the, the biggest one, I think, is the, what I, in the second edition of the book, called a visual plan, but people used to call release plans. Um, so in a release plan, what we're going to do is we're going to brainstorm things that we want to accomplish. We're going to write those down on index cards, and we're going to put them on the table. And we're going to organize them in a way that tells us what's important and what's not important, and uh, gives us some idea of our sequence. And originally, uh, I learned this from Alistair Coburn, he called it his project planning jam session. And um, he would take all these cards, all these story cards, and he'd put them with, at one of the ta- end of the table was the things we were going to do first, the other end of the table was the things we were going to do last. I do it a little bit differently now. But let me tell the story of the project planning jam sessions, because I saw the same thing over and over. And then I can talk about how that's changed, and I use it for visual planning now, if you like. 
So what I saw in these project planning jam sessions is that I would invite people to brainstorm. Um, and there's a brainstorming technique I use called simultaneous brainstorming, which is that rather than having one person be the note taker, everybody writes their ideas down at the same time onto their own pack deck of cards. Uh, one idea per card. And then when they're done with the card, they just toss it in the middle of the table. And the advantage of this is that it moves much more smoothly and quickly than when you're bottlenecked behind one note taker. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people write down their ideas about what story should be. And I'm inviting the whole team to this. And because I'm doing agile, right. You know, <laughs> don't get me started. That whole team involves a wide variety of perspectives. We've got programmers in the room. We've got uh, people with uh, domain expertise in the room. We have people who are really thinking about how what's going to make this product uh, special and successful in the room. We have people who are thinking about uh, what are the things that can go wrong and what do we need to make sure we don't forget in the room. And these people might have different titles, Um but they've got all these different, pers- or they might all have the same title. They might all be programmers, but they all, they, we have all these perspectives in the room. And so we're getting a lot of these different perspectives down on cards. And so these are being tossed down to the table. And eventually, if we're doing this in person, it's a little different online. If we're doing this in person, um, that brainstorming starts to slow down. And I invite people to organize them so that the most important ones are at one end of the table and the least important ones are at the other end of the table. And they have to be in a single row. There has Mm. to be, whenever there is a conflict between this is more important than that, one has to come first. Uh, How do you decide? Well, just flip a coin if you have to. Nobody ever flips a coin. But that, (laughs) that sort of makes the point. Uh, and I, I think it's worth noting that I no longer do my release planning this way because I think, I think it puts way too much emphasis on priority and not enough on value. But um, I did do it this way for a long time, and I think the the experience is educational. Um, and so this, this thing that we're creating, this single prioritized list that we're creating, that's the boundary object as I understand it. And I've done this a bunch of times because my practice is really hands-on. I don't do training so much as like hands-on, let's do immersion work. Uh, so we work on the actual thing that the companies need to do, um, often over the course of several months. And this is one of the first things that we do. And um, what happens invariably is uh, people really get into it and they write a bunch of stories. And some of the stories are frankly terrible. They are uh, things like, we need to install this database or whatever. And so at that moment, um, when I start to see those pop up, I, I say to the less technically inclined or less programming inclined folks in the room, um, does this make sense to you? And they'll say, well, yeah, and I say, and, or maybe sort of, I, I understand it's important. Uh, and I'll say, well, how important is it? And I say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, I say to that more programming inclined person, um, what, uh, what is the real value of this? What, what are you trying to get at? And that's our first, what I would call boundary object conversation. That's our first opportunity to get people on the same page. And what I'm trying to do is get every story to be expressed in terms of the business benefits it provides so that the people who have more of a business focus can make appropriate prioritization decisions. And so that becomes a big focus conversation because a lot of programmers don't have that experience of thinking in terms of business value. The other thing that's neat about working in person is that little conversation knots will form. 
uh, and you this is something that does not happen online, although there's tools. One of them is called gather.town, which attempt to reproduce it um, by having giving you a little avatar that moves around on a sort of 8-bit game board. And when your avatars are close together, you hear the people who are nearby. And when they're far apart, you can't hear them. So you do have the hmm. ability to sort of create discussion rooms That's cool. uh, like you can in Zoom without having somebody to put you in that discussion room kind of permanently. So it's, it's better. And I use that when I have to. Um, but in person, what you get is these really natural conversation knots where people would uh, point at this and say, what do you think? And somebody would come over and they'd have a little conversation about it. Meanwhile, other people are having little other little conversations. There may be, you know, eight, 10 people in the room. So some of these little conversations are about, well, what is actually valuable? What do we actually care about? What does value look like? How can I rephrase this thing that I know is technically important in a way that will make sense to people that care about value, but not the underlying technology. And by so doing, increase, bring up my understanding of what's important from a business perspective. Fairly quickly, the front end of the table, the one that's really important, has a really nice clear list of, we have to do this first, we have to do this first, we have to do this first. And the back end of the table, the this is least important part, has a fairly clear list of, we don't care about this, we don't care about this, we don't care about this. And in the middle is this giant, cloudy, ugly mess of cards. Because those are the ones that are important, but not important enough to do right now. Mm -hmm. And so it's not obvious what comes first. Uh, and this is actually what sort of moved me to doing this planning in a different way. Because frankly, that stuff is usually far enough in the future, we don't need to know what comes mm -hmm. first. But back in the day, I would have people prioritize it. And that would lead to some interesting conversations, in fact, and some hard choices as people would put them in a line. And the end result of this was a good shared understanding of what it is that we're going to do and what order we're going to do it in and how is everything that we need to do actually important from a business perspective. So that's my first example of a boundary object. And I think the important part here is not the structure of the exercise and not the outcome of the exercise, although that's valuable and we depend on that. But what's really important is the creation of this thing, which I'll call a boundary object, creation of the plan. Because through that shared creation with a little bit of facilitation, which I have to do in the beginning, but I very quickly teach the people I'm working with how to do on their own, with a little bit of facilitation, uh, forcing questions like, no, it has to be in a single order and it has to be something that the business representatives on the team really truly understand and value. Those fairly simple constraints create this amazing shared understanding. And that's my understanding of what boundary objects are all about. Okay, as the sort of designated authority on boundary objects, I can I can put that, I think, into the boundary object idea in that take the database person what you're doing in this process is you're saying to that person it is okay for you to care about the database it is okay for you to think about how the database fits in to the overall plan but it is not required that anybody else think about it. So w when you, programmer type person, think about the system you're building, you think about it as 
boxes and arrows and database shapes, but that's your way of thinking. What we're working on here is the way that everybody can think about uh, what this is. One of the points in brainstorming, I think, is is to expand and contract. So when you start out, you've got to collect all the ideas and they you have to truly not critique them. And that's why I want these database ideas to come out. And then there's this filtering exercise. Well, then you take the ideas and you turn them into something that's actually useful. Um, and so it's not so much that I don't want the programmer thinking about databases. I do want him thinking about databases or her thinking about databases. Uh, what I want right. them to do though, is then figure out well, what does that really mean from a value perspective? Mm -hmm. um, and I think if that, you know, we need a database card was never created <clears throat> or the business equivalent of it was never created, we would be missing something. There would be something important that was lost. So it's very much, we want that and then we want to refine it. Okay, next. Uh, so so that's um, that's the 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 project planning jam session, uh, which I called release planning in the first edition of the book. Now I do something called visual planning, which is similar, but is more focused on what's value. So instead of doing this exercise, well, we break everything down into bite-sized stories and then make this giant thing. Um, now it's more focused on, well, what are the things that we are going to deliver that have value, uh, which I call, used to call minimum marketable features. And now I call them valuable increments. That's something you can actually ship in some way that gives, brings real value to the company. And there's some nuance to it that I'm not going to get into now. And that gets organized more into a picture. And a good example of this sort of picture is Jeff Patton's story mapping. Mm -hmm. um, and he he talks about how people will come up with this shared understanding, and then they'll they'll chop it up into little stories, and it's and it's sort of like you end up with leaves all over the ground, and you've lost track of what the original tree looked like. And mm -hmm. I think that's a, I think that's a very valid criticism, and that's one of the ways reasons I've shifted away from this project planning jam session approach, which tells you priority, but you lose the context of well, how where did all these things come from, and how do they fit together. But you can take the same basic idea and even the same basic structure, and rather than making a single ordered list, you can make a picture. One way of doing that is Jeff Patton's story mapping, as I mentioned. Another way of doing it is Goico Ad6 impact mapping, which is sort of a mind map approach to this. Uh, my preferred approach is what I call cluster mapping, which is just let's take the ideas and put the ones that seem related close to each other and just make a picture that looks like whatever we want. But regardless, Again, creating that picture is creating shared understanding. But now, rather than shared understanding of what needs to be done and when, which I think is a less agile way of thinking about it, now it's a shared understanding of um, what's important to us. And once we have that shared understanding of what's important, figuring out what to do next is actually not that hard um, because it's fairly obvious. And the and if there's any question, the folks on the uh, with the business perspective on the team on-site customers can make that decision usually just at the drop of a hat. Okay. Um, from the perspective of boundary objects, I can't think of anything profound to say about that except good job. It sounds like an improvement. <laughs> it is an improvement, I think, which is why, which is why, uh, you know, that's what I'm doing differently in the new edition. Um, and another, another type of boundary object, which is different, um, but I would still call it a boundary object, is uh, something I lifted from Diana Larson. It's called purpose. Um, and 
purpose consists of three pieces. It's vision, mission, and Diana calls it mission test, but I call it indicators. Uh, it's, it's, this, it's a short document um, that says, this is how we imagine the world's going to be different as a result of our work together. This is what we're working on right now and expect to accomplish in the next oh, three to six months. And these are the indicators we're going to use to know if we're on the right track. And under other, unlike the other boundary objects that I create, which are all mostly, you know, cards on a board, and I've got some other stories about, you know, examples of those, if you're interested, um, this one is just a written document, but I think it still serves that same purpose of creating a shared understanding. Now, whether or not it qualifies as a boundary object, I don't know, mm -hmm. but, um, let me read an example to you of, of what, uh, what it looks like to make it a little more concrete. Team Sasquatch helps teams collaborate over long distances. Our customers achieve the same high quality interaction that occurs when teams share an in-person workspace. With normal screen sharing tools, one person becomes the bottleneck for all discussion. With our tools, everyone can participate. It makes long distance collaboration effective and enjoyable, allowing us to earn revenue through subscription fees from loyal customers. So that's a discussion of sort of what's the long-term value. For mm -hmm. And then the mission, our first mission is to create buzz. Our goal is not to generate substantial revenue at this time, but to pr prove viability and create excitement about our unique perspective on remote collaboration. We'll do so by creating a tool for simultaneous collaboration that replicates the experience of working with index cards at a table. It isn't a product management tool, a tracking tool, or a retrospective tool. Instead, it's a freeform sandbox that can fulfill any of these purposes. It's focused on collaboration and simplicity. It exudes quality. It doesn't provide chat or video conferencing capabilities, but instead remains focused on the core functionality of a sandbox for simultaneous collaboration. So that's now, this is what we're going to do right now. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I do want to say that this is based on a real product that I created way back in the day that I remember. <laughs> so, um, uh, boy, I was, I and my business partner were about 10 years ahead of our time or maybe 15 years ahead of our time. And we probably should have just stuck with it. Um, and then there's several indicators. I'll just share one of them. Uh, indicators. We will share our initial mockups and plans with at least 20 potential customers. We will be successful if at least 70% of them say it solves collaboration problems they are facing. This will indicate whether our approach is viable. And then it goes on to talks about, you know, more, uh, more in-depth indicators. So this is just a document, um, but it's the kind of thing I like to post prominently in my team rooms, uh, or if I have a virtual team room post prominently on our planning board. Uh, and, the way it's created, if it was just handed, if it was just created by, say, a business person somewhere in the organization and then handed the team, I don't think it would be a boundary object. What makes this a boundary object is that it's created through collaboration. I have exercises that I go through with people when we create this. And I start out and I try to get a cross section of the team, but a lot of emphasis on people with a business perspective, including the, the team's sponsor. And we have a we have a conversation about, well, what what is it that's really important? And people will brainstorm. And again, we'll do some simultaneous brainstorming and we'll write down stickies with what are the real important elements? What are the things that we're not trying to accomplish? I think it's just as important in this sort of thing to know what we are doing, what we're not doing as well as what we are doing. And you'll have noticed that in the the mission. It said we're we're doing this and we're not doing these things. Mm -hmm. uh, because the, the point of this purpose document ultimately is to provide the North Star for the team, which is 
in a really high functioning agile team making its own decisions about what to deliver. So this North Star is how the team stakeholders, the executives in the organization, steer the team um, or allow the team to steer themselves, I think would be more accurate. Provide guidelines and guide rails for the team. And so we try, I tried to get uh, those sponsors in the room with team members, uh, typically on-site customers, but often uh, some other team members who are interested as well. And they create this draft together. And then the draft goes to the team and there's this sort of in-depth conversation about what does this mean? Is it achievable? What do we think about it? And the team takes the draft and creates the final draft that the uh, that actually becomes the real purpose for mm-hmm. the uh, organization. And I think this is an example, an interesting example, because this is a boundary object that's not cards, but it's still created through that collaborative mechanism. I hooked on to your phrase, exudes quality, hmm. uh, because I can see that, I can see both programmers and testers perking up at that in a particular way. Uh, If I were a tester, exudes quality tells me, one, my job is going to be more important than usual on this project, and would sort of, if I were the exploratory testing kind of person, would direct the kind of testing I looked at, because that's a property you want users to appreciate, even if not consciously. So you would direct your testing effort toward that end. And looking at it as a uh, programmer, what I might be thinking is this allows me to have my normal desired level of enthusiasm for internal quality, justifying it to myself by saying, well, the hiddenness nevertheless will bubble up and kind of exude out to the whole world. So this allows me to be more enthusiastic about my job. Star and Greesimer, the original people, they talk about meaning. I'm wondering if maybe more than meaning, the word enthusiasm would be useful. You are collaborating toward an end, and a successful boundary object allows people to follow their own enthusiasms and think of them as contributing to the whole. Like in the example of the Berkeley Museum, they had to go to some lengths to get the amateur collectors to stay enthusiastic about collecting pelts and sending them to the museum. And there was a delicate sort of dance between the scientists who wanted lots of data and the collectors who basically liked going out in the wilderness and trying to trick animals into traps. Does that resonate at all with you as part of what you're doing? 
Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think it's much, I think it's very clear in the purpose document because that is meant to be something to inspire the team and to provide direction. Um, and you talked about programmers caring about internal quality. Um, and of course, I, I believe that the higher the internal quality, the better the results, the faster your team goes. So I want that to be high at all times. Um, but I could see, for example, a user experience designer on a team saying, oh yeah, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really excited about being part of this because I want to create something amazing. And of course, that will run into inevitably, well, we've got limited resources because there are no, nobody has unlimited resources. Um, and then there will be trade-off decisions to be made. And then when that happens, this document will guide those trade-off decisions. Well, we are aiming to exude quality, so let's maybe trade off on doing less, but higher quality, higher external visible quality. But also for the previous example of the visual plans, um, or and even the the sort of linear release plans that from the product planning jam session. Um, I wouldn't say that it leads to the same level of excitement and enthusiasm that a really well-crafted purpose statement does. But what it does do is curve create this. Yeah, we know what's going to happen. Uh, and uh, an excitement around we're ready to get to it. Like we, mm-hmm. we do have the shared understanding of what things mean and how it works together. And uh, the third type of boundary object I wanted to mention, which is sequence diagrams. Um, Before you do that, I really miss Agile. (laughs) I sure miss the time when Agile was about the sort of things you're doing. And I want to say I envy you. But it it, it is kind of heartrending because... Agile was this beautiful idea that was about making the world a better place for people who are doing meaningful work um, in, you know, the late 90s and the early 2000s. And it got co-opted. And right around, I'd say, 2007, 2006, 2007, 2005, um, that started to disappear. And and now it's almost gone. Um, But I think is, you know, I, I read sites like Hacker News, which are filled with people who think far too highly of themselves. (laughs) And actually the conversation is changing even on those sites from Agile is this disaster and conflating with Scrum to people actually beginning to understand that Agile isn't just Scrum and that there is more to it than that. So Mm. I have hope, but I'm an inherently optimistic person. And the reason I'm an independent consultant is because I get to choose my clients. And so Mm -hmm. I don't work for the ones that don't want to do a good job. Well, you have saved it from just being a pair of old guys bemoaning the good old days. Um, But you said your third example. Right. So my third example is sequence diagrams. And um, I think you were talking about the excitement that uh, the energizing aspect of a good boundary object. And I think that is true. I think there's there's something, um, even for sequence diagrams, which I'll explain in a moment, I think there's something exciting about a meeting of the minds. Like whenever Mm. I am part of a true meeting of the minds, I get this sort of frizzing in my, in my chest, like, Oh yeah, this is good. And, and maybe that's because I'm a consultant and a coach and I'm there to help people achieve that meeting of the minds. And it just makes me feel so good to see it happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But so I, I don't know if other people experience that, but when we create a good boundary objects and everybody's like, oh yeah, yeah, this means that. Um, uh, it's, it's really neat. 
even when it's just something as simple as, you know, what are we going to do this week? But I think the third kind of boundary object I want to mention, because it's different than the other two, is the sequence diagram. And this boundary object, in contrast to the others, it is still a co-creation. Um, but rather than being a meeting of the mind of a bunch of different people with a bunch of different perspectives, I think this is what Jessica Kerr calls a somathesy. Your listeners may not realize I had a, a sort of short-run series called the Art of Agile Development Book Club, where we went through the book and I had guests on and we talked about um, different, uh, the different topics that were raised in the book and used that for conversations. And Jessica was one of them. And we were talking about DevOps. Um, and uh, you were, you had the opportunity to be one too, Brian, I, but you turned me down. Oh, okay. <laughs> because I'm sure, because I said, I have nothing left to say about Agile. That is exactly what you told me. So, uh, but Jessica talks about the somathesy. She talks about the idea that the people and the computer are coming together to create a joint, joint understanding. That the people teach the computer and the computer teaches mm. us, or the computing system teaches us. And she's really thinking in terms of operating large systems where you've got multiple microservices and you're, you've got your logs and your monitoring and your alerting and your observability um, and the way you are setting those systems up so that you can first create the system and then learn from what the system, how the system behaves in practice. Because these really large complex systems are effectively impossible to fully know, mm -hmm. um, as can be observed by any time a big service like Amazon goes down, they always say, well, there's an unexpected interaction between this thing and this thing. And it is, these th systems are so complex that you can never predict all of them, but you can learn from the actual behavior of the system. And I think that is also conducive to creating boundary objects. Now we've got a shared understanding from both what the computer is teaching us and from what we know. And I think sequence diagrams are a technique that I've used and for those of your listeners who don't understand what a sequence diagram is, a sequence diagram is something that you do um, when you're examining a program and you're trying to understand how it works. And what you do is you start out with a piece of the program called a class, um, and you make a vertical line with the name of the class at the top and a vertical line down. And then you trace through and you say, and the class is going to be asked to do something by something else in the program. And that's called a method call. And you write an arrow pointing to the line of the class with the method call name on it. And then you look at that method, which is going to be a lines of code, maybe 10, maybe 1,000, maybe 100. And you're going to look at that, and you're going to read through it, and you're going to say, what method calls is this making to other classes? And when you find one, you're going to draw another vertical line to the right. You're going to draw a horizontal arrow with the name of that method call. And then you're going to recursively do it again. So you're going to look at that next class's method, read through its lines of code, and do that until you've traced out how the program works throughout the entire chain of all the method calls and how they all fit together. And this isn't something you do often, but it's something that you do when you have a particularly challenging design problem and you don't understand how the program really works, or you don't understand how to make it better. And I find when things are really complicated and tangled up, creating this, uh, creating this sequence diagram, which is what it's called, is really useful to create an understanding. And I can do it myself, but I'll often do it with my pair partner. Or if I'm 
doing mob programming or ensemble programming, which is multiple people working together at the same time. We'll do it all together. Now, there are electronic tools that will take your software and you'll tell it, do a sequence diagram, and it will automatically generate that sequence diagram for you. And the output of those tools to me is worthless. Mm -hmm. Because the value of the sequence diagram and what makes it a boundary object in my mind is that you is by tracing through, you're really studying and you're talking with your, your partner or partners. What does this mean? What do we think about this? And you're creating the shared understanding of how it works such that the actual diagram at the end is almost irrelevant. Mm -hmm. It's not entirely irrelevant. You know, it's actually really useful to look at it. And I'll typically do it on a whiteboard because I'm old school that way. And, um, and I like to take pictures of it and show it to people who didn't participate and say, look how pretty this is. And isn't this amazing? And, you know, I, I have that same excitement you were talking about earlier, Brian. I love the experience of creating understanding where there was none before. But it really comes out of the creating this diagram in collaboration with the other people on the team, but also in collaboration with the computer, which was why I chose this as the third example, because it's so different. What you're doing there is you're taking a hard problem, which is understanding how things happen, and you're using a tool to create an understanding, but the understanding is in your head. It's not in the sequence diagram. Right. I don't think I've ever read a sequence diagram that really made me feel that sense of understanding. Something I learned from Mike Feathers way back when is when you do things like sequence diagrams or class diagrams, what you should do when you're explaining them to someone is you recreate them instead of plopping them in front of them and then talking about it. Okay, that's probably a good place to stop. Do you have any last words for our listeners? To me, the essence of the boundary object is the co-creation of a shared understanding. I've found immense value from that co-creation. If you have a situation where one person <clears throat> creates a model and then shares it out, that's not valuable. If you have a situation where one person defines a word and imposes that on others, that's not valuable. What's valuable is the conversation mediated by a co-created model. To me, that's what boundary objects is all about. And if those aren't boundary objects, I don't care. It's still worth doing. Exactly. My opinion about all of the stuff that I've been doing my entire career has never been either, is this theory true? Or even, do I really understand this theory? It's does this give me useful ideas that I can try out? And so to that extent, clearly, with boundary objects in you, it's worked perfectly because you got value. Yeah. That's all we care about. Yeah, I've got value. I've got value. And the people I work with and introduce it to you get a lot of value out of it. There's so much value in coming together to create shared understanding because that is so hard. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. And I will now press the stop button. Thank you.